so much, Tom. I want to add my warm welcome to all those that have already been uh, shared with you this morning, whether you're worshiping here in person or whether you're worshiping with us online. It is always so good, as Mike pointed out earlier, to be together and to have the opportunity to open up God's Word. I especially want to welcome you if you're visiting with us today, and I pray that you will be blessed by your time here with us. We are walking through, for those who are new to us, but also for those of us who've been around for a while, we are walking through the book of Acts. And today in our study, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there, Acts chapter 5. We're going to specifically spend the majority of our time looking at verses 1 through 16, Acts chapter 5. As you are turning to the book of Acts, allow me to share a story that I read this week. It's a story of a 12-year-old boy who was uh, waiting for his first orthodontist appointment. And you can imagine he was a bit nervous and he was filling out the patient questionnaire in the space that was marked hobbies. Here's what he wrote. Swimming, riding my bike, and flossing. <laughs> it's kind of a humorous story of how we are prone to hypocrisy. From a very early age, we learned that it is sometimes more convenient, safer to pretend than to be real. But uh, as we'll learn today in God's word, that to pretend spiritually, spiritual hypocrisy is not, not only not humorous, but it is also very dangerous. With that thought in mind, let me go ahead and read the first 11 verses here of Acts chapter 5. Verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira told a, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not of your own, at your own disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied, not to man, but to God. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7. An interval of about three hours after which... His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you have sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of God, of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, verse 10 says, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11 sounds very much like verse 5. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Now, if you've been walking through the book of Acts with us, you know that shortly after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, uh, the church was born. On the day of Pentecost, the church was born. 
and immediately began to experience explosive and numeric growth. On the day of Pentecost, in a single sermon given by Peter to a large number of devout Jews from all over the many nations, more than 3,000 of them accepted God's offer of redemption through Jesus Christ. First day. Then in chapter 3, after Peter preached a second sermon, much like his sermon on the day of Pentecost, according to chapter 4, verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, if I understand correctly, if you add the number of women and the young people to that number, the church had grown to somewhere between 20,000 or more people, and it was flourishing in such a short number of days. But as we all know, as you study scripture, Satan doesn't sit still when the Holy Spirit is working among God's people. And so according to Acts chapter 4, the devil began to stir up opposition and intimidation against the church, primarily through the religious Jewish leaders. However, as Pastor Mike pointed out last Sunday, Meeting that opposition head-on at the time with powerful corporate prayer, Satan's first attacks of the church and it returning to him the opposite of what he was hoping would happen. In fact, Satan's external persecution and intimidation actually caused the church to become more pure, more powerful, and more effective. Look what it says here in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace, what an awesome thing, was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses, they sold them and bought, brought the proceeds of what they had sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, I think, is an important introduction here. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the feet of the apostles. Now the mention of Barnabas here and his costly offering serves several practical purposes, I think, at this juncture in the book of Acts. First, in the immediate context, I believe it serves as an illustration, a specific illustration of the kind of benevolence Luke was describing in more general terms in verses 32 through 35. Second, we're going to see that the reference to Joseph the Levite provides a backdrop against the sinful actions of Ananias and Sapphira that are depicted as we just read in Acts chapter 5. And finally, third, this is the first of several mentions in the book of Acts and actually throughout the New Testament where this man, Barney or Barnabas, Joseph, which by the way, he's never called Joseph again after this point, but always Barnabas, serves as an excellent introduction to this remarkable man who, who, was, who loved and who encouraged and served many within the body of Christ, specifically the Apostle Paul actually went on his first missionary journey with him and with John Mark as well. And so we see here as we come to chapter 4 that the, 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 the chapter ends with the church at a very high point. 
And it's here in the book of Acts that we see a lesson that I believe happens time and time again as you look at the New Testament scriptures. Here you see that when Satan, uh, when Satan's external persecution fails to hinder or to destroy the church, he takes his attacks in the inside of the church. This conflict, this battle, this attack, I think is introduced by the word but in verse 1 of chapter 5. Here, in contrast to the positive picture that we just read in chapter 4 about how this Christian believers here at the church, this early community, were sharing, they were loving, they were showing such amazing spirit-driven generosity. Here we are introduced to Ananias and Sapphira, and I believe truly one of the most devastating Sunday worship services of the early church. Ananias, his name means Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Sapphira's name means beautiful. But I think you could just hear in the reading of the early text here that their actions were anything but gracious and beautiful. Looking back at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, I've got to imagine, and I would think you would too as well, that with such, uh, uh, with such generosity being displayed by these believers, there had to also be a lot of gratitude expressed and affection and love and honor and praise being heaped on them. And I believe Ananias saw that, Santa, uh, Sapphira saw that. They wanted to get some of that, okay? And so like Barnabas... They declared, and I think that's a key word here, they declared that they too were going to sell a piece of property and they too were going to give all of the proceeds to the sale of that property to the church to be used by the apostles as they felt need. Okay? But this is a complete pretense. Uh, you see, they had already agreed in their hearts that they were going to keep a small amount of those proceeds right, for themselves and then they were still going to and either lie directly or make it appear that they were giving the whole amount to the apostles so that that gift would allow them to be perceived by the other people within the church uh, to be superstars, okay? It was, in short, a conspiracy of deception, complete hypocrisy. And very quickly, that comes out in our text. Look at verse 3 and through 5. Ananias, Peter says here, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained? And these questions are really important. Somebody, they actually help us understand what God was so upset with them. While it remained unsold, it, it did it not remain your own. You could have done whatever you want. And after it was sold, was it not your, at your disposal? Why is it that you have con contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied to man but not, uh, you have not lied to man, but to God. One of the strongest statements of the deity of the Holy Spirit appears right here in the first five chapters of the book of Acts. Please note that according to Peter, Ananias and Sapphira's sin is that of lying, deceit. They wanted to appear like they gave all the money when in fact they only gave a portion of it. And the bottom line is that they were trying to impress everyone with a higher level of spirituality, with a higher level of commitment than they actually possessed. Now, I'm sure you would agree with me today, and I'm going to go out on a limb here to say that, uh, that human approval, the desire to be admired, the desire to be respected, the desire to be praised and applauded by man is a very strong attraction 
to all of us, especially in our flesh. And that's why I think it is very safe for me to say that like Ananias and Sapphira, we had all at one time or another misrepresented ourselves, or hidden the truth to gain these things from man. For this reason, the Bible uh, commentary compared hypocrisy in this way to what we do when we're cleaning our house when suddenly we hear someone's coming to visit us. I'm talking here how we shove things in, junk into the closets and under the bed um, so that it can't be seen, right? Out of sight, out of mind, right? Doesn't exist. That's, that's what we think anyway, at least to our guests. Folks, that may not be a terrible way to clean a house, but it is a terrible way to deal with the spiritual sin and junk we have in our hearts and our lives. For there is no value in attempting to hide our spiritual sin, our junk from God, because it is impossible, as we see in this text, to hide anything from God. And that's exactly what happens here in our narrative. Peter knew instantly that Ananias was lying, not just to him, but to God, and he exposed that hypocrisy right there and then. And Peter goes on to, to acknowledge here something that the ultimate the ultimate source of this deception was Satan. This had to be pretty big news to Ananias, who thought this entire scheme was his own idea, of course, with the collaboration of his wife. But it, it, but it says here that it was Satan who, Peter, uh, Peter says, filled Ananias' heart. Now, I have to admit, um, I don't know all the dynamics of how Satan filled Ananias' heart. On that note, let me quickly say that I do not believe, I do not believe that Christians can be demon-possessed in the sense that demons can take up permanent residence in them, okay? Surely, surely in my opinion, the Holy Spirit would not allow a demon to possess the same person that he is permanently dwelling in. And it's unthinkable for me to believe that God would allow one of his children whom he purchased with the shed blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, made us into a new creation to be able to be possessed or controlled by a demon in that sense. But when I look at scripture, what I see is while a believer cannot be possessed of a demon, we can certainly be oppressed and heavily influenced or duped by a demon. Okay? Particularly if we open up aspects of our lives to outside control, and I see it a lot in addictions. And here's the thing. Our adversary is the ultimate con artist. Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, verse 44, he was a murderer, this is speaking of the devil, from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar. And not only a liar, he is the father of lies. And for this reason, we must... Uh, as we look at scripture, follow the admonitions here of not being ignorant of Satan's devices. By that I mean we need to understand as we study scriptures the tricks and the, and the traps that Satan often directs towards believer. I'm talking about pride and discouragement and temptation and doubts. If we're not careful, we can be easily tripped up. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 for this reason tells us in verses 11 through 13 actually these commands. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not, this is important here, we do not 
wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, that's a very important therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. You know, I'm guessing <laughs> nothing must infuriate the devil and his demons than, than, than the fact that when a believer realizes and, and when they trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that the very same Lord who evicted them out of heaven now dwells in us. Isn't that amazing? Yes, the devil is indeed a big and powerful force. And we see that here in the text. But he's still small and he is defeated to God. The bottom line is this, and this is so important, because we walk around in ignorance. The degree to which Satan outsmarts, outwits, whatever you want to use a believer will correspond directly, directly to how informed or how ignorant we are of the schemes against us and how, how equipped we are to stand against him. Now, looking back at our text, we find that uh, when Sapphira arrived there three hours later, after Peter verified her participation in this deception, he quickly pronounced judgment. Verse 9, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. It's interesting that Peter pronounced, unlike Ananias, Sapphira's death here before she died. And the timing and the place of both Ananias' and Sapphira's death here indicate to me that this was indeed judgment passed on by God. And as a result, according to verses 5 and verse 11, in both situations, great fear, we're told, fell on the church as people saw the hand of God at work. Now, with that story now laid out for us, I want to ask and answer two questions. Two questions that I'm sure, because I wrestled with them all week, that all of you are thinking, okay? And uh, the first question is this. Why did God judge Ananias and Sapphira so severely? Anybody else thinking that? Why did God judge Ananias and Sapphira so severely? And I got four thoughts to share with you. First, here's my first thought. I believe Ananias and Sapphira were underestimating the holiness of God. They were underestimating the holiness of God. It's not around very much anymore, but I can remember when I was in college, a book that came out was called The Pursuit of Holiness. It was by Jerry Bridges. And he quite accurately, in my estimate, said this about the church. Even though it was written years ago, I believe it still holds true today that the, the most fundamental need for the church today is an ever-growing awareness of the holiness of God. And by God's holiness, Dr. Bridges uh, is talking about God's uh, uh, unique transcendence. He's talking about his supreme majesty, his, his moral perfection and the faultlessness of all of his other attributes. We just sang about how great thou art, right? And many of those were pointed out in our song. He argues that when people lose sight, when God's people lose sight of God's holiness, Instead of rightly seeing God as above us and unlike us or over us or bigger than us and the source and the standard of all that is good, just, and loving, we foolishly can slip into a false perspective that he's just like us. And frequently, when we have that tainted view of God, 
and God's holiness, we often misunderstand the wrath of God, thinking it's, uh, it's just an outburst. It's an emotional rage like a frustrated parent. And, and, and instead of seeing it as a rage that is uh, the, a result of a pure and a perfect and holy hatred of sin and evil. And on the flip side of that, we don't see it as a, a, a rage that's built on his deepest love for, for what is good and what is pure and what is perfect. Likewise, when we understand, our, when we, understand we don't understand God's holiness the way we should, I believe we often underestimate uh, how deeply sinful we are. We foolishly think of ourselves as good enough or or, uh, smart enough or likable enough that we somehow deserve God's affection and forgiveness for us. But from the beginning of time, God, who does not change, he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He has, in his holy and righteous justice, established that the penalty for any and all sin is death. We can see that all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, where we are warned, the soul that sins shall die. We know in the New Testament, in Romans 6, 23, that God tells us the wages of sin is death. That, thus, anyone and all of us, because we have sinned, the scriptures make it very clear that we deserve to pay the penalty of death. And this why this is why, my friends, that you and I need a savior, a savior to come and pay the penalty that we could not pay ourselves. And praise be to God, that is exactly what Jesus did. You know, if you think about it, and it occurred to me when I was studying that Jesus is the original Barnabas. He sold everything, didn't he? His prestige in heaven, his very life, he laid it, he laid it at the cross before his heavenly father. He held nothing back and did it all for our good. Even though he knows that we are just as sinful as Ananias, Sapphira, maybe even worse, he gave it all for us. And let me just point out here, nothing required God to provide this way of redeeming, uh, redemption for us. Uh, He had every right to simply allow us to suffer the deadly consequences of our actions, but he didn't. He didn't. Instead, he stepped into our world And then dying on the cross, rising three days later, he made a way for sinful men and women like you and me to enter into a relationship and know God in a personal, eternal way. And he did it all for us out of love and out of mercy because he wanted to save us from our sins. He he wanted us to have victory over Satan's lies and to save us from his own wrath. Nonetheless, some of you still might be thinking, as I'm wrestling through this this week myself, okay, Mill, I hear you, I understand what you're saying, but Amanda Sachs 5, the way God acted out, it seems to me to be a bit out of character that he took such quick and decisive action against Ananias and Sapphira's deception. And I get that. After all, if we read in other books of the New Testament, we see incidences of sin in the New Testament that God did not respond swiftly and quickly, as we see here. Uh, We could be talking about the sexual sin in the Church of Corinth, or or favoritism in the book of uh, of, uh, James, or racism in the book of Galatians. God did not act immediately to snuff out those actions or sinful things. And so it's tempting for us, and I want to use the word tempting here, to think this is a case where God simply lost his temper, his patience with Ananias and Sapphira. 
But as I hopefully just pointed out to you, that is simply not true of God's character. And the other thing is, it actually goes against what I think is happening here in this passage. Let me try to explain. That brings me to a second reason that I believe that God reacted to Ananias and Sapphira's deception in the way he did. You see, we need to understand that this was a pivotal moment in the history of the church. A very important moment in the history of the church. Think about it. Contextually, we're just a few months into the birth of the church. Before the church has been scattered, uh, sent out to the ends of the earth with the gospel, they are still gathered in Jerusalem. And I believe, third, God wanted to warn and to purify the church. He wanted to warn and to purify the church. To say that this kind of shenanigans isn't going to happen. Okay, it's not going to be something I approve. And so God intervenes here in ways that I think are reminiscent of other times in the Old Testament when the people of God were on an important new task or new mission that God has given to them. Uh, Take, for example, Joshua 7. In Joshua 7, we find the the story uh, of the Israelites. They've been out in the wilderness. A whole generation of, uh, of uh, Israelites have died because of disobedience. And now they're getting ready to move into the long-awaited promised land. And God has just miraculously delivered Jericho into their hands. Remember, Joshua fought the battle of walls came tumbling down. It's a miracle. It really is a miracle. And prior to the, this opening battle, as the Israelites were going into it, God clearly instructs them that Jericho was to be totally destroyed. There was to be no plunder kept for themselves. Well, shortly after this victory, they, they, they go back into battle again, this time to the city of Ai, and they experience a humiliating defeat, and 36 of their soldiers are killed in that effort. And because of this defeat, we find Joshua literally so distraught, he's really questioning whether God was in this, was he really going to be able to conquer the land of Canaan. And it's about that time, the next morning, that God revealed to him there was a man named Achan. And Achan had coveted, he had, he had taken a, a robe and some shekels of silver and 50 she, a shekel bar of gold, and he tried to hide it from God, and he buried it under the tent, hide it from the people of Israel. And God intervened, and Achan and his entire family and all that plunder were destroyed. And I believe God judged the sin of Achan so severely like he did here in in Ananias and Sapphira as it defied his authority. It undermined the community commitment to holiness that God was calling them to, and it threatened to bring destruction upon the people of Israel as they were entering in, as they were moving in obedience into the new promised land. And likewise, I believe that uh, God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira are meant to warn this newly birthed church and all of us, too, of our need to take very seriously sin and disobedience against God. Now, please note, God's warning was heard very loudly and very clearly. Verse 11, great fear, same in verse 5, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And that's the fourth reason I believe God judged Ananias and Sapphira as he did. God, you see, wants his church, I believe, to walk in the fear of the Lord, in the respect of the Lord. Foolishly, I think that we feel that because God doesn't zap us the minute we, we sin, we think it doesn't really matter what we do. But let me assure you, it does. In fact, if you look back at chapter 5 here, verse 9, and Peter's charge to Sapphira, notice the words, you put the Spirit of God to the test. 
these words are, are pretty important words. They have the idea of to see how far God will let you go before he uh, stops you. Uh, or more vividly, to, to keep pushing God's patience up against the wall. This phrase shows us, I believe, that there is a serious danger in being defiant to God's conviction. For the unbeliever, as we know, if they continue to resist God's conviction, the fear of God is the fear of judgment and the eternal death, which means eternal separation for God. For the believer, the fear of God is something very different. It has the idea of deep reverence and deep respect. I see it in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, a good description of it. Look what it says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This reverence and awe, this reverence and awe, are exactly what the fear, I believe, of, 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 of God means for Christians here. But while respect is definitely included in the concept of fearing God, I also believe there's a little more to that. A biblical fear of God, you see, as I understand it, includes understanding just how much God hates sin, and I believe fearing the discipline of sin, even in the life of a believer. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 5 through 11, God goes into pretty big detail to describe the discipline of a believer. And while it is done in love... It's still a fearful thing to experience, an unpleasant thing, I believe, to experience the, the, the discipline of God. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, look at what it says. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Again, he loves us, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Think about it. How many of us uh, backed off from doing something really foolish or sinful when we were children for fear that it would lead to the discipline from our parents. And I think the same is true in our relationship with God. However, let me point out something very important here. Let's remember as we think about the discipline of the Lord that we have the promise that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, right? 38 and 39. Let's also remember that we have the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. The bottom line is this. I believe that fearing God means having reverence for him that will greatly impact the way we think and the way that we live. The fear of the Lord, as I understand it, is respecting him. And with that respect, it's obeying to his word and the principles and commandments of his word. It's submitting to his discipline and worshiping day by day, moment by moment, in awe of who he is. But there's a practical side of this fear of the Lord that I don't want us to miss. Let me share it in an illustration. I want you to imagine a bunch of teenage boys. I'm not picking on your teenage boys, but I was one, and I'm, I'm using illustrations of things that happened in my life, okay? I want you to imagine a bunch of uh, teenage boys on a street corner in the summertime. And um, you're all sitting there, you're bored, and nobody knows what to do, and suddenly one of them offers up an idea. Uh, an activity that will surely get you in a lot of trouble, a mischievous idea that will surely get you in a lot of trouble if you get caught. None of you have ever done that, I'm sure. All the boys immediately begin to get excited about it. Oh, yeah, 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 you know, kind of, ooh, let's go, let's go, except for one boy, okay? All the boys except for this. And so what do boys do when one of the boys resists doing what everybody else wants to do? Ah, oh, kind of thing, right? Um, and one of the boys flat out says to him, 
you are just afraid that when your father hears about this, he will hurt you. And the boy said, no. He quickly corrected them. I am afraid that when my father hears about this, I will hurt him. You see the difference? Based on all that the Lord has done for us, based on all the love he has extended to us, all the blessings that he pours out on us day in and day out, I believe it ought to be a genuine desire, a sincere desire of every one of us to live in a way that brings him honor and that pleases him. Praise God. I want to make this clear. The beauty of the cross is that our relationship with God is not based on mine or your performance. Praise God for that, right? It is based upon the completed work of Christ on the cross. Nonetheless, as I look at Scripture, our God is a holy God. He hates sin, not only because it dishonors him, not only is it because it's out of our character as his children, but it also causes damage to the ones that we love. And according to Ephesians 4.30, when we don't walk in holiness, when we don't love others the way Christ loves us, we can actually grieve the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And so we want to live with the desire to please God. Now let's go on to the second question. Okay, we've looked at the study. I've done my best to explain to you why I believe that they receive such swift uh, judgment. I want to talk in closing, how should we respond to this narrative, okay? And I believe God is calling us from this account to become a community and believers that make up this community to seek three things, okay? First, as I look at this text, I see God is calling us to repentance rather than to pride. God is calling us to repentance rather than to pride. Yes, beginning a relationship with God is a one-time event. But if we want to stay aligned with God and his will and his word, if we want to grow as God intends us, then we need to keep short accounts of sin. We need to readily confess to them, and we need to repent regularly. Um, this is going to require us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to abandon all the excuses we give. It's going to require us not to shift blame on somebody else, own up to when we mess up, when we sin. It also means that moment by moment, we are humbly recalibrating, realigning our thoughts and practices with God's word and surrendering daily to the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, making us day by day more like Jesus. Okay? A truly repentant person turns conviction into action. And a truly godly repentance always leads to change or transformation. Okay, first thing. Second, from the example of Ananias and Sapphira, we see God is calling us to integrity rather than to deception. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if there's anything I hope we all see here is that God values authenticity. Okay, I hope you see the importance of authenticity in your own life, authenticity in our church family here. Uh, it's so emphasized in this text. And I hope you will also say with me that you see the clear message in this passage, that while we may think we can, we can fool others, while we may even be fooling ourselves, we cannot hide our heart from God. He sees it all. 
And practically speaking, if we want to cultivate a community here of godly integrity, that means some practical things. A commitment personally to developing and maintaining a deep, intimate walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. A a personal commitment to developing deep friendships and fellowship here. Not casual, but deep. Sharing our lives with one another. Confessing our sins to one another. Being honest with each other. And transparently divulging our true selves with those who can help us to put, put... away the sin, and to daily put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why community groups are so vitally important. That's not going to happen sitting in church usually. Okay. By the way, look at verses 13 through 16. I'm not really dealing with them, but something really jumps out at me there. Without a doubt, there are many pastors today that are afraid to talk about sin, Afraid to deal with sin in their churches, for they're afraid that numbers will decrease. But look at what God says in verse 14. After God had cleansed the church, it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multiples, both men and women. May we never, ever break away from the full counsel of God. Not afraid to talk about anything that is in God's word. The third application I see as I look at the account of Ananias and Sapphira, is a need God is calling us to generosity rather than self-glory. God is calling us to generosity rather than self-glory. Scripture completely, uh, 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 repeatedly uh, confirms the fact that it is a privilege, it is an honor to give to the work of the Lord, to care for one another, to support the work of the Lord by offering up that which he has entrusted to us to give. However, it's clear as I look at this text, we are to give not to prove the, the stature, improve the stature of what you and I think about each other, but rather our, our motivation for giving always should be to give honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot and we must not ever give ourselves the credit for something that God has accomplished. Amen? Wrapping up here today, I want to invite the praise team to come up. We're going to end a little bit differently today. But let me just remind you today, it's been said multiple times we've sung it today, that uh, our God is a holy God. He is an amazing God. And um, to enter into his holy presence, there's only one way that we can come, and that is through grace by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so uh, in a moment, we're going to sing the closing hymn, only a holy God. And we're going to be reminded again, as we've already been reminded several times, that God's, uh, of God's vast uh, beauty, holiness, power, his sovereignty. We're going to be reminded that even though we are broken and sinful and that we have failed God in many ways, he still loves us. And I'm praying that as we sing this song that we'll be struck anew by the great sense of awe and wonder that God cares so deeply about us. His desire for purity and power and effectiveness in our lives, that we'll see that and make that the priority that he wants. For God loves us more than we could ever, ever understand. So would you bow your heads with me now in prayer? And as we wrap up that prayer, join the praise team. Stand and let's sing this hymn. Heavenly Father, today we are so honored by the fact that you are such an amazing God, a holy God. Father, we recognize that you are so much greater than anything our little minds could ever comprehend. And though you have revealed yourself to us, you are so much bigger than our perception of you. 
Father, would you help us to grow more deeply in our understanding of your holiness? Would you help us to grow in our reverence for you as we come before you and in our praise and worship? And may we leave here today with a greater passion and excitement about the holy creation you've made us in Jesus, your son, and with a desire to live more purely, more powerfully, and more effectively for your glory as we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.